Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Every war must end. The question is, how? By 1865, the outcome of the Civil War was no longer in doubt for many. But who was going to say so first, and on what terms? One astonishing, if unsuccessful, attempt to end the fighting saw the President of the United States personally meeting with Confederate commissioners aboard a steamboat. That's an episode that's at the heart of James Conroy's book, Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln, and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865, and that's our subject today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you, as is often the case, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, one of the many campuses of the University of North Carolina, but not speaking for North Carolina the state, the university, ECU, anybody else, my guest likewise speaks only for himself as we always clear these legal issues away before starting each week. Indeed, this week here on campus, we were given new conflict of interest procedures and external professional activities for pay procedures and all kinds of other procedures. Um, eventually, we'll have to simply eliminate that pesky teaching and research activity that we do so we can focus entirely on filling out forms and reports. But that utopia of bureaucracy is in the future. Uh, Maybe things will get better here. We do have a new dean on the way. Uh, We have new workload policies. But let's not talk about those things. Uh, I will share before jumping in the uh, circumstance of getting a phone call from my 10th grade English teacher this past week. That's something uh, doesn't happen all the time. Once in a while, but it's one of the good things about teaching is, is encountering former uh, students 
or teachers. <clears throat> and uh, it was it was a pleasure to hear from Miss Smith uh, and uh, find out what she has been up to and to realize that she was one of the most formative teachers I had in high school, uh, made us work harder than almost anyone else and read and write. And uh, it seems to have paid off uh, to some extent that I get to do the same kinds of things she was doing to, to us, I get to do to my students now, 40 years later. But uh, it, it, I guess in comparison, when I think about it, uh, the, the years I spent practicing law, I, I don't picture people stopping me on the street and saying, hey, do you remember that real estate, you know, that, that uh, contract we signed in, in 1985? Boy, that really means a lot to me, and I'm great. It's good to see you 30 years later. But that does happen with teachers, so there's something to be said. On the other hand, the lawyer has much more money, but uh, we'll let our guest weigh in on that when we get to the topic in just a moment. Uh, in the meantime, a reminder that we're here on Voice America, the dominant force on Voice America, the show more people listen to than uh, the one advertised right before the show, uh, something about sex out loud, and all I could think of is, my mother's listening to this, please. Uh, but we don't control what our corporate overlords wish to promote. That's up to them. We do control who gets on this show, and we've got some good guests coming up. Next week, Catherine Meyer has a book on nature's civil war about the environment in 1862 Virginia. Linda Barnacle joins us the following week with a book on uh, battle and at Millican's Bend, history and memory. Bjorn Skapson of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop will be with us on May 14th. Michael C.C. Adams, author of uh, Living Hell. Is that the name of it? It's a, it's a bad name. Uh, uh, I don't have the book in front of me at the moment, but it sounds, it, it's the dark side of the Civil War. It sounds gruesome. And we'll talk all about that on the 21st. Uh, no show scheduled at the moment for Memorial Day week. That could yet change, but we'll be back on June 4th. Rachel Sheldon with Washington Brotherhood, uh, a look at politicians before the war, which relates in some ways to what we'll talk about today, uh, the folks who knew each other in antebellum Washington trying to resolve things in 1865. You can find out about all of this, as always, every week from www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us informed as to what's happening on the show. I always look there to see what I'm supposed to be doing. You can buy books advertised, not advertised, there's no money changing hands, books talked about on the show. Uh, you can find out about there and buy a copy. If you click through the show website, then you send a few pennies to the webmaster, so that's a good thing to do. You can donate to the show with the uh, uh, PayPal button that you find there. That goes to CivilWarTR at AOL.com. And contributions are always welcome. We're into the home stretch with College Decision Week uh, for the younger daughter at home, and uh, leaning strongly at this point towards the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, not just that the weather's better uh, down here than it is in Ann Arbor, but it's that in-state tuition thing uh, that makes such a difference. If somebody were to donate, say, $40,000 to the show in the next week, that could, that could change things, but I'm, I'm not holding my breath. Well, 
let's move back to 1865, 1864, really, to get the, the show started uh, and talk with our guest tonight. He is James B. Conroy, author of Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865. Mr. Conroy, are you there? Um, uh, welcome to, to the uh, Welcome. Uh, I started the show by making the almost obligatory offhand negative reference toward lawyers uh, that I do too often, but I see you uh, yourself practice law in Boston, according to your dust jacket. Is that uh, accurate? I have to confess. Yes, it's uh, true. Uh, I didn't know I, that you had, you had been a lawyer. When, when I was in graduate school, uh, readers will fill in the, the, the blank here at Harvard, uh, when I was in, in graduate school, I spent summers working for Goodwin, Proctor, and Hoare oh, oh. as a, a sort of, I'm not sure what I did for them. I wasn't a, you know, a, a summer associate like a law student. I already had my license, and now I was doing uh, history work. But I think they just liked having me around to, you know, say we got a Harvard history guy here. I, I'm not quite sure, but it paid well and helped me get through grad school. So I'm very grateful for that. That's great. Uh, are you... Uh, independent practitioner? Are you with a firm? Uh, um, I have been a partner of a small boutique uh, litigation firm for 30, well, uh, actually practiced law for 32 years, but I've been in, in a small uh, partnership for 23 years. Before that, I practiced in a big Boston firm. Uh, what uh, kind of stuff do you guys do? Uh, civil litigation, uh, mm -hmm. commercial litigation, um, primarily. Um, so uh, lawsuits, defending and prosecuting lawsuits. I, I have ju just a very few years' experience at that, but mm -hmm. um, but you've written a book here about the Civil War. I I had the same itch to do that, but I gave up the law entirely to go and do it. You found a way to do both. Uh, mm -hmm. How how do you manage that? Well, um, it's been a lifetime ambition of mine to uh, write such a book. Not necessarily this particular one, but uh, I've been fascinated by history since I was uh, seven or eight, I guess, and uh, I uh, took a branch uh, in the road after college toward the law rather than history, but always wanted to find a way to uh, return to what I really enjoy, um, and uh, four and a half years ago now, I um, started on this project, uh, writing it, researching it on weekends, evenings, on my commuter boat ride up to Boston and back and vacations and uh, just sort of finding the time when I could. It was an eventful four and a half years, but I'm glad I did it. Well, it, it's uh, it, it's a book that I've enjoyed reading more than almost any other, uh, certainly this year and, and in a long time. I found it really, really interesting, and we'll talk some about that, but I'll, I'll tip my hand to the listeners now. Uh, you, listeners, you want to get a copy of this. Uh, the, the the phenomenon of, of lawyers who are interested in something else is certainly common enough, and I always think if there could be more balance in that profession where people could do things like you've done and, and write a book or coach a youth team or do something other than, than 60 or 70 hour weeks when they're starting out, they might, more people might stay with it. Uh, mm -hmm. Not that we have a shortage of lawyers by any means. Uh, On the contrary. 
But, uh, yeah, I think it helps. Um, it helps you be uh, uh, more flexible, more creative lawyer as well as a person when you diversify your interests and your activities. It's certainly been true for me. So in terms of writing this particular book, you said that this, this wasn't specifically the book you had in mind. You had a general, was, it, was Civil War the topic you had in mind? Well, not necessarily. I've always been fascinated by the Civil War. Um, I'm old enough to remember quite well the centennial in you know the 1960s and uh, uh, was really drawn into it then. Um, and I don't know if, if you recall the Jim Bishop book, The Day Lincoln Was Shot, um, really captivated me when I was a kid, and um, I've always had in my in my you know file of ambitions to write uh, a book about Lincoln and the Civil War that was a narrow slice. For some reason, it really appealed to me as a kid to to read a book about a single day you know, the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, and um, I tried to find a topic that had not been covered at book length that um, would be a little slice of Lincoln's uh, career and, and of the Civil War that would have some, some impact. And stumbled across this subject um, actually a couple of years before Spielberg uh, featured it uh, at least as a subtext in the movie Lincoln, if you'll recall. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the peace conference between Lincoln and these three very senior Confederate officials uh, had been pretty much forgotten before the Spielberg movie. And uh, I had read about it in uh, snippets here and there in Shelby Foote's uh, trilogy and elsewhere and uh, did some research to find that uh, no one had written a book about it in 150 years. And uh, I had my subject. Well, you mentioned the Spielberg movie, and that that was in my mind almost from the beginning of this book, because really it's not just about the conference, but about all the peace efforts made from late 64 right up through the end of the war. And in the middle of that, there's, of course, the issue of the 13th Amendment and and whether there are peace negotiations going on is, is central to that story. Right. So as I was reading the book, I felt like, I, not that I was reading the screenplay to the movie, but uh, th- there was a very similar sense. Uh, it, it was character-focused and uh, politically focused, but the personalities loomed large. So one question that, I, that immediately came to mind was, when the movie came out, did that just throw you for a loop that, oh no, someone's... <laughs> stolen my thunder absolutely that was the first thought i had i i remember uh, watching tv one night and i saw a little trailer for the movie and i thought oh that's good movie a spielberg movie about lincoln that's great and, uh-huh. and then I, I my eyes got very wide when i when i noticed that they were talking about this peace conference i thought for a moment there that uh the ground had been cut out from under me but uh i actually got a worried call from a friend who who, who warned me about it as well but it turns out uh, that of course no movie can spend anything like the time and depth that that a book can spend on the subject and uh, actually there was a lot of uh, dramatic license in the movie uh, about the whole the whole transaction that uh, is very entertaining and uh, certainly broadly broadly accurate but there was a lot of uh, detail that was not uh, not exactly uh, on uh, you know uh, accurate if you will um, and as you say the book 
really explores the personalities and the relationships and the um, events that were taking place in and around the peace conference uh, in a way that the that the movie doesn't. And so they, I, to me, it seems like complement one another. I mean, having having seen the movie, it it gives me uh, you know a voice to hear when I hear Thaddeus Stevens talking. Although I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's what he really sounded like much, uh, but it does give give some reality to some of the more obscure characters uh, that a lot of people wouldn't know who uh, right. Preston Blair was, for example, uh, unless they're listening to this show. So I, I thought it was an advantage. It, it it made the book more interesting to me rather than less to, yeah, to have the, right. the movie in, in the back of my mind. Um, we're coming up to our first break. We're going to take a short break. What, what I'd like to ask you when we come back, though, is to talk about some of the peace efforts before the conference. Because, uh, again, while the book is titled subtitled about the Hampton Roads Conference, that doesn't show up for quite a while because we really learn that there were a lot of feelers or attempts at feelers uh, between the two sides before 1865. So we're going to come back and talk about that. Our guest today is James B. Conroy. He's the author of Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with James Conroy author of Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865. Um, Mr. Conroy, do, do you go by James, Jim? Our first Jim. name's okay? Yeah, Jim, Jim is great. Uh, um, Jim, you you have, well, I, I told the listeners in the first segment, and I'll say it again, uh, you want to get this book. This is uh, one of the most uh, entertain, entertaining, is not the word, uh, absorbing. It, it was each week I read the book that we're going to talk about on the show, and some weeks I find it a duty, and I go through, and usually it's pretty interesting. And once in a while there's a book where the pages just fly, and you just say, wow, that, that's over already? That was good. Uh, and this is one of those, and, and they're not very common, so I, I highly recommend it. Um, you, you start out talking about these other efforts, uh, uh, people like Preston Blair going to try to get a connection between Lincoln and Davis. Uh, did this, how did you find out about this kind of thing? How did you do the research to, to decide what stories you were going to tell? Well, um, I, I think I mentioned earlier that I came across the story in Shelby Foote's trilogy on the Civil War, and what attracted me to it was the dramatic scene that uh, occurs when these three southern peace negotiators cross the line between Lee's army and Grant's, you know, south of Richmond at Petersburg, um, on their way to see Lincoln. And there was just tremendous jubilation on both sides of the of the siege line from the southern and northern troops. Uh, they, you know, they cheered for the peace commissioners. They cheered for each other. Uh, they just had an outpouring of emotion and uh, joy over this whole thing. And it just struck me as a very captivating uh, thing that I hadn't heard anything about. So I started peeling back the layers, first making clear from, you know, online searches that no book had yet been written on the subject. And once I found that that was the case, I did a lot of work with the internet, uh, peeling back, leading from one point to another to find out the origin of this peace conference and the efforts, as you say, that preceded it, uh, formal and informal, to find a, 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 you know, a way to end the war peacefully. And it became more and more fascinating as I did that, that uh, by the late part of 1864 when most sensible people had concluded that the war was going to end as it did. The, the, the difficulty, of course, was to get uh, the combatants to the peace table and find some way to compromise or uh, resolve this thing in a way that didn't involve sheer brutality. Um, and um, I, uh, I just sort of peeled it away layer by layer and, um, and uh, went through many memoirs, diaries, articles in old 
magazines um, and, you know, journals and uh, memoirs and uh, patched it all together over a period of several years. Now, you mentioned when the the peace commissioners come through the lines and they're, they're greeted with cheers. If I recall correctly, in the Lincoln movie, there's a moment where the, the peace commissioners encounter black Union soldiers, mm-hmm. and there's a moment of high drama mm-hmm. as these Confederates uh, face these armed uh, African Americans. Did did that actually happen? That you, you know, it's interesting you should say that because again, I want to I want to emphasize that I really enjoyed the Lincoln movie, and it's a great mm-hmm. work of art, and uh, I'm delighted that it was done. But that was probably the most dramatic example of um, uh, the movie's portrayal uh, of this whole thing in a way that really doesn't reflect reality. Um, I frankly don't know whether there were any black troops present um, when these peace commissioners came through the lines. I certainly never read that there were. Um, But that point aside, in the movie, it's a very solemn kind of glowering moment with dark skies and rumbling, you know, Mm -hmm. background music. And it's this glaring stare by the three Southern Peace Commissioners being glared back at by the, you know, by the Union troops. And there's just nothing like that in the historical record. There was certainly some bitterness on both sides, and the book notes that, that not everyone was delighted by the idea of negotiation, um, certainly on, on the military side as well as the political, but the overwhelming feel for this event was one of jubilation and not, you know, not resentment or this kind of sullen uh, scene that you see in the Lincoln movie. Well, as you pointed out earlier, no movie can, can go into the depth of a, a book of several hundred pages. And I, I guess I would, I, I could take the filmmakers' side and say that that is a an example of license where right. you elect, where you put in the black soldiers to make a point. Uh, it didn't happen, uh, of course, but it does convey a, a deeper truth. But in this case, they bought that at the cost of uh, what really did happen, as you pointed, the jubilation. Uh, the relief both sides, the soldiers of both sides felt at the thought somebody's doing something to bring this to an end. Right. Uh, you do a very interesting technique of weaving in as the days go by through the, the winter of 64, 65. Uh, uh, you, you change scenes frequently and often to the front. And there's uh, uh, just a bit of what's happening at Fort Hell and Fort Damnation on the Petersburg front uh, or some individual being killed by a random sniper that so the reader never forgets that there's an ongoing cost while these politicians are negotiating or trying to negotiate well i appreciate your you're saying that i i i did um uh, i did uh set out to do exactly that to keep the reader focused on the fact that this is not just political abstraction and grand theoretical thoughts but individual lives that were being lost hour by hour, literally, on the Petersburg siege line and in North Carolina as Sherman moved up uh, into South Carolina, uh, I mean, uh, from South Carolina into North Carolina. And um, that was all taking place hour by hour as these peace negotiations were taking shape and then actually being conducted. 
and uh, regrettably uh, as they failed. And I do think it uh, keeps the reader focused on the human drama of what's going on here as well as the uh, sort of high-level discussions. It, as a writer, did you, did you at any time think about this as a possible screenplay? There are some books you read, like by the time you get to number seven in the Harry Potter series, <laughs> it just reads like a screenplay. You can tell when the scene's going to shift, when mm-hmm. who the actors are. Uh, you know it's being written for a movie. There's, there's something cinematic about your approach. Was that intentional? Um, actually not. I can't say that I did sit down and consciously try to do that. What, what I did consciously try to do was to bring these, these people alive, to get into their personalities, their relationships with each other, um, the fact that all five of the participants in the peace conference had known each other at varying levels of uh, intensity before the wars, and, and some of them had been good friends. Uh, Lincoln had been a good, close friend of Alexander Hamilton Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, when they were both in Congress together in 1847-1848, and had together been leaders of a movement against the Mexican War at that time, which was not a popular place to be. The Mexican War was, by and large, a popular war. It certainly you know, brought vast swaths of territory into the United States and was, um, you know, sort of at the time a glorious victory. But Lincoln and uh, Alex Stevens had been of the view that it was basically aggression against a weaker country that had done this one no harm. And uh, they stood up together, literally and figuratively. Lincoln, 6'4", and Alex Stevens never weighed 100 pounds, quite an interesting character, and uh, had forged this very close friendship. Um, Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, had been a good friend of um, Robert Hunter, a senator from uh, Virginia, who was one of the other Confederate delegates. And the third Confederate delegate, John Campbell, had been a a United States Supreme Court justice, a brilliant, brilliant guy who um, was um, incredibly well-respected on both sides of the uh, Mason-Dixon line. And they had all known and respected each other for for years. So to come together now, having been enemies, or still being enemies in the midst of this civil war, um, was really quite a dramatic event. Um, And as I say in the book, they spent the first, who knows, 15, 20 minutes of the meeting just reminiscing and telling old stories and enjoying each other's company, almost reluctant to turn to the business of the day, you know, and break that mood of sort of bittersweet nostalgia that, uh, that permeated the, the whole thing. Huh. You mentioned Mexico, and that, that features heavily here because the, one of the things that gets the ice broken, at least toward, toward getting this meeting started, is the idea of ending the Civil War and launching a joint war against the French army in Mexico. Yeah, it's a, again, it's a story that I think most Americans are totally uh, unaware of, uh, the underlying uh, situation, that is, which is basically this. Uh, in 1863, while the North and the South were engaged in their civil war, the emperor of France, Napoleon III, had sent 30,000 French troops into Mexico um, to depose the elected president of the country and basically take it over, 
which he proceeded to do and installed as emperor of Mexico uh, an Austrian archduke who was a puppet of Napoleon's. And um, neither the North nor the South were pleased about this. This was its open and obvious violation of the Monroe Doctrine and more importantly, an ultimate threat to the security of uh, of the of the North American uh, uh, people because of uh, this dominance by a European power right across our border. So everybody was uh, unhappy about it, but otherwise distracted. And and what um, what ties it into the peace conference is that uh, Francis Preston Blair, who uh, would take too long to, to describe at length, but basically was a great patriarch of his day, uh, a mentor to seven presidents all the way back to Andrew Jackson, um, the patriarch of uh, Blair House, which of course is still in service today across from the White House. But Blair had been a mentor to Lincoln and an advisor to Lincoln and had also been a father figure to Jefferson Davis. Uh, having known Jefferson Davis since he was 13 years old, since Davis was 13 years old. And Blair went to Lincoln around Christmas time in 1864 and told them he had a plan to end the war that would reunite the Union and uh, achieve that without destroying the South militarily, which he wanted to avoid. And the drift of it was that um, uh, a proposal that Blair made to Jefferson Davis that the um, northern and southern armies, more specifically Lees and Grants, would combine and um, go into Mexico and eject the French from Mexico, um, enforce the Monroe Doctrine, and that having done that, um, you know, fought together against a foreign army, they would naturally fall into each other's arms on the old battlefields of Mexico, and uh, the great good feelings that would come from that would inevitably lead to a a reunion uh, and a reconciliation. It was kind of a bizarre plan, to say the least, um, but uh, the book uh, gets into it in some depth. Yeah, bizarre barely touches it, yet right. what's, what's more bizarre is is how far it went. That uh, And Blair pushes this, uh, and Lincoln sends him to go talk to Davis, not as uh, an ambassador or, or, or with with anything but a past that says you can cross the line. He's right. not really representing anything. Lincoln's very clear about that. Uh, but Davis hears all kinds of things. Uh, when Blair says, I'm not representing Lincoln, Davis hears, I'm representing Lincoln. Right. Right. And, the, um, yeah, Davis took it that... Blair was there speaking for Lincoln, even though he said that he was not, and in fact did not have any authority from Lincoln. But uh, Davis uh, was of the view that Lincoln would not have let Blair come down there for nothing, and that um, if Blair said Lincoln was going to back this plan, then then that was good enough for Davis. And um, the um, the truth of it is that Lincoln rejected the whole thing on the spot as soon as the southerners brought it up when they did meet uh, on the steamboat at Hampton Roads, Virginia um, and it never amounted to anything more really than, than Blair's fantasy but uh, it was a, a vehicle that, that did bring them together in the same room um, and opened up the possibility of some other route to a negotiated peace 
which I think, you know, as the book describes in depth, um, could have been achieved and very regrettably was not achieved. Well, that, that's an interesting question, cause, and that, that was one I wanted to be, be sure to ask, and, and we're coming up on a break, so we'll, again, we'll pause and we'll come back and talk about that. But the question is, uh, were there, was there ever any realistic chance of a negotiated settlement? Uh, from, from your description of events, there was a very clear precondition on Lincoln's part that the country must reunite. Mm-hmm. And everything else was negotiable, including slavery to some extent. Mm-hmm. And there was a very clear precondition on Davis's part that the two sides must remain separate, and then they mm-hmm. could negotiate. Uh, so on the surface, it looks like there's there's no way that they can come together. Uh, well, I'm I'm going to leave us with a teaser there, and we'll stop, uh, take another short break, and come back and find out if there was. Any uh, in the judgment of our guest tonight, James B. Conroy, uh, author of Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln at the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865, we'll ask him if there was any way peace could have been achieved uh, before it was, and we'll find out when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with James B. Conroy, author of Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865. In our last segment, we were talking about the question whether there could have been uh, peace 
before the end of the war as it actually occurred, whether at the Hampton Roads Conference or some other time. Uh, and I came away from this book feeling that there, the effort had to be made, but there was just no no likely, no historical likelihood of this happening. Uh, how, how do you see it? Well, I, I see it slightly differently, I guess. Um, I think that uh, you start with the premise that we've certainly learned in the 21st century and uh, before that, that it's much easier to start a war than it is to stop it. Mm-hmm. And once people have expended blood and treasure over a period of time and the, the, the bitterness has set in and the stakes have gotten as high as they get, it's very, very difficult to end a war uh, in, in, um, you know, in political terms. But I, I think, and that certainly was true of, this, of our Civil War, but I think that um, there was no way in the world that Jefferson Davis was ever going to agree to uh, uh, reunion under any conditions. Um, and so the trick, as I think Lincoln understood, was to find a way around Davis, to find a way to to reach past him to the war-weary people of the South who were in large numbers ready to end this war. There was, you know, movements for a separate peace, particularly in Georgia and North Carolina. Uh, the, the Confederate armies had really been bled pale uh, there was tremendous economic suffering and uh, uh, just, you know, uh, war, war weariness throughout the South. So the issue was, how are we going to find a way to get there? And I think there's two ways it could have happened. One, and both of them are, are addressed in the book. One is um, the proposal that Lincoln made to his own cabinet when he got back from the peace conference that something had to be offered to the South that would give them an inducement to come back into the Union and end the war, and also to save the face of the Southern people, to find a way to to let them honorably put an end to this war. And what Lincoln proposed to his cabinet was that he would ask Congress to appropriate $400 million, which was serious money in those days, uh, to be paid to the slave states, um, and that all of the Confederate leaders would be pardoned for what was considered the treason that they had engaged in. And third, that all of the property that had been confiscated from Southern property owners would be restored. All of that would be done if the South would come back into the Union and um, uh, work one way or another toward the abandonment of slavery. His own cabinet rejected that unanimously. Um, fearful of the reaction it would get in Congress, which was dominated by radical Republicans and dead set against any meaningful compromise. But if something like that had been proposed and had been, uh, you know, championed uh, in the North as well as in the South, it strikes me that it could have been the basis for a resolution, as Lincoln thought it could. And the second way that was al- is also discussed in the book is that um, after uh, Richmond fell uh, and Lincoln went down there to Richmond, um, uh, met again with one of the three Southern leaders who he had met with at Hampton Roads, Judge Campbell, the former Supreme Court Justice, and they discussed the prospect of the Virginia legislature coming back and voting Virginia back into the Union. Um, yeah, you know, just with the realistic assessment that, that the war was over and that the best way to end it 
would be for the, the elected political leaders of Virginia to bring it back in as they had brought it out. Uh, Lincoln was very, uh, very favorable to that thought. And um, others uh, were as well. Um, there was talk about that in North Carolina. And the, uh, the concept was that if the individual states vote themselves back into the union one by one, pretty soon Jefferson Davis will be presiding over nothing. So that was another route. Um, uh, regrettably, uh, Stanton, Lincoln's secretary of war, talked him out of this uh, idea, as did Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, and he abandoned uh, the, the concept. But those, I think, are two ways that it could have been done. It's very interesting. I, I'm thinking, I'm teaching an undergraduate Civil War class uh, and a graduate one combined right now, and we're, we're at the end of the semester, we're into Reconstruction. And of course, uh, you know, when, when Reconstruction does occur, the circumstances are different. The war has ended differently, and Lincoln's been assassinated. But with all that, the southern states immediately attempt to resuscitate slavery in the form of the mm-hmm. Black Codes mm-hmm. and, uh, and then elect people like Alexander Stevens as their senators and congressmen as if this were a big game of tag, and mm-hmm. now it's over, and we go back to the way we were right before. And, and the the Congress, the Republican-dominated Congress, was not going to have any of that. They they thought the war had been fought for a reason to end mm-hmm. slavery and eliminate the Confederate leadership. So I, I have to admit I'm skeptical that if Virginia voted itself back in, unless it would have behaved better than the actual Reconstruction legislatures did. Uh, well, that's uh, certainly true. I, I I don't quarrel with that at all. And um, you know, there was when I was growing up in grade school and high school, we were taught in the 60s that um, there really had been this overbearing northern oppression mm-hmm. of the South and that Reconstruction had been, you know, a, a terrible uh, bungling by these northern uh, vengeful uh, politicians. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the, the norm that was taught to us. Uh, you certainly are um, far more scholarly than I, um, but from what I have read and learned since then, um, it seems to me that the Southern politicians, the former Confederate leaders, did exactly as you say and sort of defied the whole notion of changing the social system and, you know, uh, behaving in a way that indicated that, in fact, they had lost the war. And mm-hmm. uh, there was um, as much blame, if not more, to go around to the white southern leadership uh, for the failures of Reconstruction as there were in the North. But that all said, I do think that uh, intelligent people knew uh, by the winter of 1865 that this war was lost and that there was no realistic way to win it. And and one would think that um, ways could and should have been found to uh, end it uh, in, in in a more orderly political way than by military conquest. And I think if Lincoln had lived, um, Mm -hmm. that he had the political skills and the respect on both sides uh, to have been able to, um, had a decent shot at doing that. Um, Certainly in the North, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. he's revered, but but in the South, I think he was respected as well. And uh, there was very little um, personal animus, I think, toward, toward Lincoln, unlike 
Andrew Johnson and others who took power after Lincoln was assassinated. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that there was an absence of animus toward Lincoln, but I do agree with your overall assessment that things would have been much, much different had Lincoln uh, not been assassinated. And, and I think you make a, a really strong point that most people did think, or uh, many people thought, you know, could see the writing on the wall by the end of 1864. Mm. It, it's tough to put ourselves in the mindset of people at the time uh, and to remember the, the, the Southerners are looking at, you know, George Washington at Valley Forge and saying, mm-hmm. well, hey, you know, 2,000 barefoot guys against the whole British Empire, mm-hmm. but they won. So, okay, yeah, Lee's outnumbered, but we just have to emulate Washington. We're still going to win. They, they don't know, as we know, it's really about to end. But d- does the interpretation you present where enough intelligent people do see it's about to end, does that make Jefferson Davis the, the villain of the piece? Well, I think, candidly, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, I came away from my research and analysis of this with a with a dim view of Jefferson Davis. Now, that said, you know, you make a, an excellent point that it's easy to sit here in the year 2014, 150 years later, and look back and see what could have, should have, would have been done, um, you know, with a wiser, a wiser leadership. So that has to always be kept in mind. But um, I do think that Davis was so rigid and so um, emotionally um, bound into the honor uh, honor oriented uh, assessment of uh, his responsibilities and the southern cause uh, that it was really uh, poor uh, leadership on his part at the end of the war that um, that um, made it um, impossible in the end to find a uh, a way to end it. You know, the other thing I, I make a point in the book is that every other American war had ended in a negotiated peace. Um, the Revolution, um, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War had all uh, ended by negotiated settlement. And um, there was a, you know, a mindset that I think that we um, uh, have lost sight of with the major wars in our history, World War One and World War II, um, uh, being, you know, and most of our, our more recent wars being ended militarily rather than by negotiation. So all of that said, um, it, it's easy in retrospect to look back and and cast dispersions on, on the leadership of people who, as you say, didn't know how things were going to turn out. But um, I do think that if there had been someone of Lincoln's caliber and political skills um, in, in Richmond, um, it would have been um, a different outcome. Well, you know, that, that comes through in the title of the book, which I thought was, was really well chosen, uh, that when, when Davis uh, sends a note to Lincoln you know, proposing this peace conference, or you know, through through intermediaries, mm-hmm. but essentially saying our uh, uh, we can have some sort of thing. And Lincoln sends a note back saying, uh, and Davis says we can have somebody from our two countries can discuss this. And Lincoln writes back says we can have a discussion about the problems of our one common country. Right. And Davis is supposed to write a pass to get the commissioners through, and he all he has to do is agree with what Lincoln has said. 
and the commissioners carefully draft it for from they they get it to say just what Lincoln needs it to say to get through. And Davis crosses out our one common country and writes our two countries. Right, right. It, 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 he can't bend on that point. He, he couldn't. He couldn't bend on, which is understandable. You know, he had fought the horrendous war over it, and his people had elected him, as he said, to preserve the Confederacy, not to negotiate its death. But when you're holding a hand with no cards and the other side is holding you know, a full house, um, mm-hmm. the better part of uh, leadership is to recognize that, which is what Judge Campbell openly said at the time, the Supreme Court Justice who had been one of the three negotiators. You know, it's not the part of statesmanship to close our eyes to the facts, is the way he put it. And um, unfortunately, that's pretty much what happened. Are you working on uh, another book? Well, interesting that you should say I'm, I'm trying to select another subject, um, almost literally as we speak. Um, and I've narrowed it down a bit, but uh, haven't quite uh, made that selection yet. Well, I, I, if it's a, a Civil War topic, I will look forward to reading it. And if not, I'll try to find spare time to get <laughs> other kinds of reading done. But uh, I mean, this, this book really, uh, I've found absorbing and uh, uh, brought the story to life. Uh, I think it, it really does complement the Lincoln movie well, and, and uh, people who've seen the movie will enjoy the book and, and vice versa. Uh, they're not competitors, they're in different media altogether, so, so they ought to work uh, together. Uh, if We have time for one final uh, short question. If, sure. if Davis is the, uh, the villain of the piece, uh, that's putting it too broadly, but, but I Maybe not totally wrong. Uh, is, was there a hero for you? Well, I think on the southern side, and I, I, my instinct is is to gravitate there because I do think that Judge Campbell is really quite a heroic figure. Uh, I speak a lot about the book, and I've told many audiences that John Campbell is the most interesting and uh, commendable Confederate leader that no one's ever heard of. Uh, I think that uh, you know his name has faded long ago. But he had the courage to stand up um, for um, uh, a policy uh, once the war was plainly lost, as he saw it, um, to do the best that could be done in that circumstance. He was the only Confederate leader who stayed behind in Richmond after the government fled, you know, when, um, when Lee uh, had to abandon Richmond. He knew, as I say in the book, that he was putting a noose around his neck, literally, that there had been, uh, you know, an outcry for the hanging of all the senior Confederate leaders. He stayed in Richmond, the only one who did so, uh, to work with Lincoln, to try to find a way to end this thing peacefully, and, um, you know, really was quite heroic. So I, I think if I had to pick a hero, it would be John Campbell. I think it's a a good choice, and listeners, you will find it a good choice to read Our One Common Country, Abraham Lincoln and the Hampton Roads Peace Conference of 1865. Uh, James B. Conroy is the author, and Jim, it has been a real pleasure talking with you tonight. And and same here. I appreciate it very much, and uh, I thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.